Hey there, you're listening to the Water and Music Podcast. My name is Sherry Hu, and I'm a freelance writer focused on how technology is transforming music and culture. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the fine print behind big ideas at the intersection of music and tech, featuring a curated slate of young innovators, leaders, and thinkers from across the music business. The goal is to get you thinking differently about how this business might work and maybe even challenge your assumptions about where music might be going. Water and Music podcast is 100% ad-free and supported entirely by members on Patreon who collectively just surpassed the $1,000 a month mark. Thank you all so, so much for any level of support you've shown so far. And if this is your first time hearing about the Patreon, you can join now for as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash The Patreon page is the best way to get more insight into my writing and reporting process. You can vote on future topics for my email newsletter, get exclusive recaps from conferences and other events I speak at, and even get early previews and be able to give feedback on articles I'm working on. Again, that's patreon.com slash sherryhu. Thanks again. Today's guest is Dan Runcy, who's the founder of Trapital, an email newsletter about the business and strategy behind hip-hop. In today's episode in particular, we dive into a recent Trapital issue he wrote titled, Why Hip-Hop Can Help Venture Capital Navigate Changes in the Industry. There's so much to unpack on this topic because, despite these two worlds not historically being as friendly with each other, the recorded music and venture capital worlds are actually super similar especially with regards to how the entrepreneurs in both industries are exercising more scrutiny and gauging the various opportunities and deals that are available to them. Dan and I dive into a ton of questions like what alternative investment models are coming up in both industries beyond just the major label deal or the growth at all costs VC model. How is an indie distributor like United Masters actually similar to the startup accelerator model in tech with a few added caveats. And will VC's growing interest in music actually increase the value of recorded music itself in a way that helps independent artists, or will it only exacerbate already existing issues around wealth disparity in the industry? And of course, at the end, each of us shares a piece of news that, in today's case, we think is overrated. Full show notes, including all citations, are available at waterandmusic.transistor.fm slash two. Hope you enjoy. All right. I'm here with Dan Runcy. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm so excited to dive into today's topic just because this is something that I think about all the time in terms of the intersection between the artists and the startup world and like writing about music and tech, how those two worlds are intersecting strategically. And you do outline some of this in your piece from like the costs of launching a company going down in in both the music and the tech industries to 
both independent artists and entrepreneurs wanting to find alternative financing models and like not wanting to stick with the traditional major label deal or the kind of growth at all costs, big VC model, which is fascinating. But before I go into that, I actually wanted to highlight the question that you asked sort of towards the end of your piece. And you were referencing this question that's been going around on Twitter. I didn't realize until doing research for this, like since last year, there was a would you rather question of would you rather get $50,000 or have dinner with Jay-Z? That's just such a fascinating question to me. And I feel like in the context of today's discussion and this topic about the startup world, it's kind of like a litmus test for what kind of metrics you value. Like, do you value having hard cash and like trusting your own ideas and trusting yourself to execute on them? Or, or do you value wider cultural impact and sort of tapping into that kind of influence, even though it's not as easily measurable or it's not as tangible? I would love to start off with that and get your take on how you would approach that question. You, you you did provide an answer that I thought was pretty like funny and also smart in the newsletter, which was you would take the $50,000 and then find a way to meet Jay-Z otherwise, like at a Rock Nation brunch. But yeah, I would just love if you could walk through like how you would approach that question and maybe how you would tie it back to this topic of musicians and entrepreneurs in the VC world intersecting. I'm glad you asked me this question, and I'm actually glad we started with this, because ever since I've written this piece, whether it's friends or other people, have been reaching out to me, and it's restarted the debate. On my Instagram feed, it's comments back and forth with people arguing this. And for mm. me, it's it's been pretty it's been pretty simple because when I think about Jay Z and the value add that you'd get from being able to sit down and have dinner with him, a lot of people focus on two things: one, the advice that you would get, like the strategic insights, and then secondly, the networking and connections. So I separate the two of those when I think about this. And in terms of the advice. I do think that Jay-Z's actually been pretty forward in terms of the nuggets and wisdom that he's dropped. Like he's written his own book and he has done plenty of interviews with Rap Radar and other folks. And for me, I feel like because I've also written about him several times in Trapital, I have a pretty good sense for how I think Jay-Z would think about particular things. So for me, the value add isn't so much getting that additional insight, because I think there could be a few additional things I might be able to glean, but I think I already have a pretty good idea for that mindset. The other side is the connections in the networking. And while I do think that some of that could be beneficial down the road, I think I'd have you know more confidence in taking the extra money, taking that $50,000 and what I could do with that from a business perspective or from a you know personal financial aspect and that giving me the access to be able to fund my own pursuits and eventually be in the same rooms and being able to navigate those same conversations with Jay-Z and others. So that's definitely my perspective, but then I know that several other people focus solely on that networking and connections aspect, then it's like, that's great. Jay-Z is well connected, but there are plenty of people that sit down with Jay-Z and it's not like they automatically are now, you know, soon to be billionaires themselves. It takes a few things. And I think for me, the confidence I have in my own vision of what I would do at $50,000 is, is what tips that over the edge. Yeah, no, that's, that's so interesting. And tying it back to this notion of musicians, music industry and the venture capital industry collaborating more. 
I feel like in some instances, it is a kind of like grass is greener on the other side kind of situation, but there's legitimate reasons why the two industries want to collaborate more. So like on one hand, the VC world wants the network and like wants the cultural influence while musicians maybe are looking for the long-term wealth that maybe comes with investing in startups or the sustainability that comes with building a more long-lasting tech product versus like an album that might not be relevant in like a month or even a year. But I think kind of what you're getting at with that response is that that partnership doesn't always work and like the the existence of that network isn't always a guarantee. I'm just thinking like in in researching this industry, there's a whole laundry list of startups that comes to mind, each of which try to leverage celebrity partnerships in some way as their primary customer acquisition strategy. So like they partnered with Justin Bieber or Jay-Z or Lady Gaga or some other really high profile celebrity as a way to attract users only to have the product and its popularity fall flat just as quickly as they may have risen or like not risen at all so that that raises the question which i feel i feel like is very difficult to answer otherwise these startups would be more successful but what do you think it takes for this kind of partnership to be effective like if a celebrity wants to partner with a startup or vice versa how do you actually make the most of that partnership beyond just spreading the word and not actually executing on a product that will last so as you were talking you, you made me think of a few things it's like i look at music and i look at tech and if you look at the partnership value with each of those so if you're a musician or if you're a rapper specifically is it more valuable for you to be signed with rock nation relative to a tech startup and then being part of y combinator because i look at the two of those and they're so like valued in each individual industry but then like who do i think values it more like do i think a rapper wants to be more with jay or do i think that you know the the, the founders want to be in that you know why that in that yc cohort so it's it's interesting i think that with music specifically and like you mentioned justin bieber and a few of the other artists i think i feel like there's a inclination to try to do more of it on your own more than there's ever been before because the labels had such a strong hold. And I think in a lot of ways they still do, but now you just see more artists that are more willing to push back, but not just push back, but be proud about the fact that they're not signing or they're not going to go that traditional route. Like Russ, the rapper um, from New Jersey, he just went on this tweet storm a few days ago talking about, how he doesn't believe that anyone under any circumstance should ever sign to a label and that he thinks that everyone should be owning their own masters completely and everyone should be sticking to, you know, pretty much managing their own product and managing their own careers until they develop enough clout and develop enough leverage so that when it comes time to partner with the labels, you can do things on your own terms. And I do think that there is, you know, some truth to that. And I, and I think generally it makes sense. Like I've written a number of times in my chapital pieces about the value of launching and about the value of building strong ownership and having that be maintained. But with that being said, I still do think there are some artists that are like, you know what, I'm fine if someone takes 50% of the cut and owns this. I just want my 15 minutes of fame. So 
if that's what you want, it's fine. I, I think most people have their general preference and you can definitely see where the tip in the pulse in hip hop is moving. But yeah, I, I, I do think in general, artists are moving more towards that direction. But that safe option being, you know, a record label, if you're big enough, will always be there. So thinking about, yeah, like how artists are interacting with labels and a growing number of them are, yeah, like choosing to go independent, even if they have the opportunity to get like a million dollar, multi-million dollar advance up front or to get their 50 minutes of fame. Historically, in investigating and talking about this artist, a startup concept, I have compared labels to VC firms saying like, yeah, like the label is to the artist of the VC firm it is to the entrepreneur. But I've realized that, yeah, the analogy isn't 100% perfect kind of for the reasons that you described. And I feel like one big part of it is that when an artist signs a deal with a label, they actually end up feeling less entrepreneurial and not more like, yeah, like they feel locked into the major label structure and more dependent on that infrastructure. Whereas yes, in like the tech startup world, you are beholden to your investors and or or shareholders in some way, but I feel like you still feel some sense of autonomy over where you're career goes whereas the, the at least the stereotype of the major label deals that the artist has very little say over or the the label has the final word over like which songs will appear on the album or what type of music they should make for instance i think it's it's a pretty difficult question just given the sheer scale of these major labels now and how they're structured internally but i'm wondering if you think there's anything that labels could maybe learn from investment models outside of music. Like you see more and more artists, they're not signing to a major label per se, but they are signing partnerships with distribution companies. And those companies aren't, you know, taking any ownership over their copyright, but they're presumably investing in the artist on the marketing side and and taking a cut of their revenue. So that's like one potential alternative. But do you think there's anything that yeah, do you think there's anything that labels could learn from the VC world when it comes to innovating around the investment model itself. Yeah, I I think so. Because when you look at the VC world, um, there are more options popping up that are alternatives, right? I I think now you're, at least in music, you're starting to see more of what I would generally call accelerators. So United Masters, for all intents and purposes, is an accelerator. And I think Mm. that they're doing, you know, some things well. And when I think about, um, I think about the tech industry, there like that product has just been around for so long. So in a lot of ways, in music, it is getting a lot of the oohs and eyes as it should. But I think you could see a little bit more of that. I mean, United Masters isn't the first company to have this type of model. They're probably just the first to solely market themselves towards the hip hop community. But I do think that you could see the labels do a little bit more of that. And when I think about the comparison you started with in the beginning i i i definitely focused on that as well like record labels and vcs often get compared to each other but i think the real comparison is probably a little bit closer uh record label being more close to private equity than it would be true venture capital right because private mm-hmm. equity tends to have more of that ownership and especially for the time frame of the um of the time that they've been given to you know see where things can go they are the ones that are in control so the owners of the company no longer have control you're giving up to this other person and they end up dictating more of the rules and how things end up 
moving forward. So with that, and you're thinking about all of these like stages from whether it's, you know, incubator, accelerator, you know, so on, that's in the traditional tech landscape, there probably are some aspects in there that the music industry can take. And I do think that, you know, whether it's your big folks from um, your, your big three labels or some of the smaller independents or your United Masters, there's a good amount of variety in there, but I still think we're scratching the surface. And when people look at what Steve Stow and others have done, there's only going to be more of that that um, comes to light in the next few years. Yeah. Could you actually elaborate on this notion of United Masters being an accelerator? So like what elements of that company's model do you think is like comparable to an accelerator in the startup world? So when I look at accelerator in the startup world, they look at the young companies that are up and coming and say, okay, how can we help you get to the next level? We'll take a small cut. We know that the next level is most common fundraising and let's help you get there. So this is where I actually think the models differ slightly, but in its core, in its base, I do think United Masters is similar in that, you know, they just found this 16 year old rapper. I think his name is NLE Shapa. They found mm-hmm. this 16 year old rapper and he was getting, you know, big label deals for $3 million or not three. Yeah. He was getting label offers for $3 million to climb those went with United Masters and they're, they take a 10% cut in exchange for the distribution and the digital property partnerships that they have with the NBA and other organizations. And their whole thing is, okay, you can own, you, you, you still own your masters. You still own the rights to your music. We're just taking some of the top line revenue to help boost you to get you to where you need to go. So in terms of that being accelerated, I think I could use, using the term loosely to talk about the fact that they're trying to get you to the next level while you can still maintain your ownership. But I guess the key difference between a traditional tech accelerator versus a United Masters is that the tech accelerator is clearly trying to groom you to go on to um, apply for funding in the, you know, with traditional VCs versus United Masters has kind of pitched themselves as, no, this could potentially be the last spot for you and you can continue moving on on from that. And I guess as we're kind of talking about this, one of the things I mentioned in that piece was um, Indie VC. And Indie VC is a firm that has, similarly to United Masters, positioned itself in the tech world as an alternative option to say, hey, I know that a lot of um, a lot of tech companies are going traditionally towards the larger VC firms, but no, you can work with us. We will cap the amount of um, in, we'll, we'll cap the amount of investment that we would put in your company, but then we also cap the return that we have, and we also give you the option to buy back shares down the road. So they had invested in the Shade Room a few years ago and a few other companies. And I think they actually just completed a recent um, round of applications and they're going to be announcing their new cohort. So I guess we're talking about this, I'd probably relate them a bit more closely to the United Masters model because they both say something that sticks with me that, yes, this can be the last stop for you. And after you've worked with us, you can continue moving on with your career moving forward without anyone you know, having their hands in it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think it's such an important distinction. And I was just talking with someone else yesterday about the distribution business, which I 
presumably United Masters is in. That, that's at least part of their business. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, for a lot of independent distributors, especially relatively newer ones, is that they're not entirely disruptive and that a lot of their artists actually do move on to major label deals. And like they end up going back into the traditional funnel. The head of Techstars Music, Bob Mose, I saw him ask this question to a company that was kind of working in the, the distribution artist marketing space, like during a pitch presentation, saying like, are you truly disruptive if you're eventually going to have so much churn because your artists still end up going to major label deals because you're not actually providing them with the proper tools? Um, so th yeah, like that's just a really big challenge that I think a lot of these distributors, especially ones that like United Masters are taking on this messaging of we are the alternative to a label where we're anti-label, you don't need to go through that traditional model, but like, can they actually meaningfully compete in terms of being able to invest the proper funds? And another thing that came to mind, just listening to everything you just said, is that another, I guess, difference in the accelerator model of United Masters or other distributors competing with them versus in the startup world is that like United Masters as of right now is also like a self-serve distribution platform. So like anyone can opt into that acceleration process. And that to me is such a fascinating model. And you see other companies like Amuse going into this and Amuse, I feel like takes it even further because their platform is free. Like they're not even taking a cut of your royalties, but in the terms like of their agreement, they're seeing all this data for consumption on the back end. And then they have their separate label business that is then going in and I guess further accelerating a select number of artists who they see are gaining meaningful traction. So I guess the potential pool of participants in this quote unquote accelerator is just so much wider in music. Right. And that reminds me of something that I know you've written about and talked about before is that placement in a playlist or rap caviar or whatever it is, is not the same as artist development. And because mm -hmm. they're not the same, that's why some of these artists may end up pursuing that label route even after going through programs like these. Mm, interesting. You're you're saying that because there's a misconception about the added value that these distribution companies can provide, or you're saying that like the the traditional label ecosystem is better at providing that like deeper development. So like, what is the difference there? More the former. So that okay, you're like the United Masters and these companies. Um, they clearly do the good job of being able to offer that placement and offer the um, opportunity for artists to get in a NBA Instagram ad or get featured in the playoff commercials and stuff like that. But one thing that the labels do offer is, you know, the grooming and the nurturing of the artists that come in a bit raw. And especially, yeah, if you're taking a 16 year old, I would imagine that, yes, a 16 year old today is a bit more seasoned than, you know, 16 year old 20 years ago, just given the amount of resources. One of the things I had written about in the piece is that um, your average SoundCloud rapper could do a masterclass in self-promotion today just because they're so well-versed in dropping in DMs and needing to go promote their music. But with that being said, what's the next step? After you, you know, drop all your music and tracks in the DMs, after you're getting placed in the NBA ads and whatnot, what is that next step? Like, what is the path to go from NLE Choppa to J. Cole, because you know J. Cole is doing all of these same things being in these NBA digital properties as well, but there's still a gap there. 
And who knows, maybe it isn't United Masters that needs to serve that role. But right now, the record label seems like the best option to do that. So what is that in-between offering that the music industry could potentially offer that similarly, you know, allows artists to maintain what they have, but then get them to that next level? And, you know, maybe it's some of the products that we had talked about in this or services that we've talked about in this conversation, but... I still feel like that's a, a misconception and there needs to be a more like uh, at least a prominent or a easy to access option before those same artists just go on and, you know, continue working with the record label down the road. Yeah, I never quite thought about it that way, but it's true that the approach is kind of polarized in that sense. Because I feel like if you think about United Masters, or if you think about the biggest and oldest independent distributors like CD Baby and TuneCore, their model is entirely dependent on the long tail. And like they're trying to sign up as many artists as possible, in part because their their business models are, are different, but they do depend on getting as much money as possible from the long tail. But that model is not optimal for like, yeah, like high touch, customized artist development and like really being invested in the long term trajectory of an artist. That's where I think a lot of distribution companies are trying to differentiate themselves. And I think it is still relatively early stages in that I don't know, like, whether there'll be just one winner in this space, or if they're all if they'll all have their own like select roster, but Cobalt and AWOL, their approach is much more curated already. And they already are building out what is essentially like a label services team, like a streaming services relationship person, a radio promotion person, like a general digital marketing person, like all these services that you would have at a major label are now going into the distribution company. But yeah, I guess there doesn't really seem to be any kind of middle ground. And yeah, I think all these all these companies are trying to compete to get a share of that. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure how well that's actually doing. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is... Um, heightened by the media focus. Um, and when I say media, obviously, I don't think it's, it's, it's you and I. It's the more, you know, clickbaity stuff you see out there. Because I feel like there's such a general notion that if you're, a, if, if you're a rapper and you get put on Rap Caviar Playlist, you made it. If you get put on Rap Caviar Playlist two right. weeks in a row, all right, go, you know, call up all your friends. We're going to Nobu. We're going to go <laughs> celebrate, right? And it's like, all right, slow down. Like, that is, like, you had one hot song, like, Blueface right now has the hot song, but I don't think anyone has, you know, certified Blueface in, you know, the sphere of being able to have, you know, a longstanding career. I wish him the best, but it takes a little <laughs> bit more than, you know, a few, you know, spots on, you know, the top playlist on all the respective, um, you know, uh, streaming services to, to make that happen. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of related to another point you made in your piece that I found really interesting, or you were bringing in this trend that people have written about in the wider VC world, that they're investing more money into fewer deals. So I think the subtext of that is that they're being more patient rather than acting purely on media hype and really only wanting to invest in startups that have proven traction and have a proven product that's actually making an impact in the world already. And when I was reading that, I was wondering whether the same thing is happening for music. And I feel like that there are two different narratives. I don't know if they completely conflict with each other. But one of the narratives is that, yes, these labels are more data-driven and they care a lot about your 
you know, social media and streaming metrics and they're hiring more data analysts for the A&R teams to like, you know, try to scout talent in the best way. But then there's this other narrative that's saying that saying that labels are still essentially like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think it, it's been written that way, especially in hip hop, given that, as you were saying, like these artists are so good at self-promotion and know social media so well that so many of them go viral really quickly and almost immediately jump into a really high profile major label deal. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to whether you think that that trend that's happening in VC in terms of VC firms maybe exercising more scrutiny and being a lot more selective with respect to their deals, but signing bigger checks. Do you think that's happening to music or is there still a gap there in terms of the mindset? Yeah, in music, I I think there's still a little bit of a, I think there's still a little bit of a gap there because in the VC world, a lot of this was shifted by this, like I think structural changes that were happening. Like investors themselves, or rather VCs themselves, were starting to raise larger, larger funds from their investors, and in return, they mm-hmm. had a bit more pressure and inkling to find larger companies or, or find more safer investments to be able to put that money into. So it was like less advantageous for them to just, you know, do, do the spray and pray approach that a lot of um, other ones have taken. So that's why you've heard time and time again, your um, the, your A round is now the pre-seed round or your C, C round is now the A mm-hmm. round because they keep on getting larger and larger at each phase because folks get more and more money. When you get more and more money, you want to either, you know, fund more mature companies or, you know, sit on those or sit on the money because you largely are also getting paid for your management fees because of, you know, what you're investing in the VC world. In music, I don't necessarily see that same like structural pressure that's changed and, and, and that's happened. But with that being said, I think you may be seeing a bit more on the other end where you now have some measurable metric that you can use to determine whether or not an artist is hot or not. Even like 10 years ago, like you would hear stuff like um, like L.A. Reid has reminisced about how he signed Lady Gaga. And it was one of these like pure intuition things that had, you know, little metrics where he was just like, oh, like I just knew. Like I just knew she was going to be a star. And I mean, I know I know people hear that. It's a very romanticized thought, but I'm sure he said that about a lot of people that didn't quite pan out, right? But I think today in the music industry, not only do you have that intuition, but you compare that intuition with actual statistics. You can look at SoundCloud and see all the stats for the SoundCloud rapper and see how well they're doing on their platform. And when you have that and mix that with the intuition that you have, you can actually make a a little bit more of an informed decision. And I think when you have those metrics, it leads you to ideally be able to sign talent that may either be a a bit more proven and developed, or you have a few more metrics to be able to see what are folks rocking with, right? Like, you can look at their Instagram page and see how active is it? Like, what are folks saying in the comments? Like, these are the jobs that labels can do that, um, you know, even just 10 years ago, you had a little bit of this, you know, on your MySpace musics and stuff like that in the mid 2000s, but it's nowhere near as robust as it is today. Mm, yeah, that's that's a really good point. And it feels it feels kind of cliche at this point. I've heard people talk about it all the time at conferences and other events and articles, but it's also led to the same 
the, the, I guess the same perceived binary of like gut versus data. And like even just thinking right now, the same thing actually does exist like in the tech startup world in a way that maybe people aren't thinking that much about, but it, it takes the form of another cliche of product versus team. And it's it's a really interesting like parallel there where you can, you know, bring together all of the metrics about how your product is doing, like where your customers live, how much time they're spending on their app, how much money you're making, and use all of that to make much more informed decisions, which is super valuable. But time and time again, you hear in the VC world that it goes to, it all boils down to the founder, which is something that I guess from from the investor's perspective is the most difficult to control or it's the most difficult to quantify and, and it requires a much deeper investment from both sides. And music certainly is not an exception to that. And, and I think that's where things can get tricky because when you mix the team aspect, of course, I know that a lot of funders, especially in the earlier stages, they're looking for, do they trust this team to be able to make decisions and make changes because they know down the road, they may want to change their business model and the product that's being placed in front of them today may not be what actually comes to market. But like, do they trust this team being able to pivot? And I think a lot of that from a rubric perspective makes sense. But as we both know, that's where things get very subjective. What are the metrics that you're using to determine that team aspect? And this is where things can delicately get back into some of the you know, pattern matching and mirroring and some of the other inherent bias that can come through tech scene when you're, you know, trying to sign um, potential companies. I think in music, you maybe see a little bit, you know, less of it from like a, a bias perspective of holding certain types of folks out of the industry. But I think it actually takes a little bit different, a little bit of a different shape because so much of that like pattern matching and music happens, but it's a different flavor where I, I think about New York hip hop. I mean, I'm originally from the East Coast, so I grew up on this stuff. The region spent so much time trying to, you know, find the next Tupac in the late 90s and early 2000s was dedicated to trying to find that rugged voice. So you have a lot of that pattern matching that ends up happening. And I think to some extent, you kind of have that today. Um, these the, the, the labels themselves treat themselves a little bit more as a family than a true venture capital firm would in their investments. So, you know, as I'm talking this, I'm kind of developing the thought as well, but if you're on, like, if you're an artist and you want to get signed on Dreamville, they've clearly made a brand for themselves in the industry. So if you want to be with them, you start mirroring the moves that you see J. Cole and other folks on the label make. Like, what is that, like, flow? What is that sound? And just how do they carry themselves? And so I feel like that, that although it's different, that subjective team aspect plays there as well, because when you're signing with a label, Maybe it's a little bit different at one of the majors because, um, you know, they just have such a wide catalog. But in the more familiar, in the more familial style of like the popularity of your quality control music and, you know, your, your Dreamvilles or your OVO, th that family aspect is another element of, you know, wanting to match those patterns and you're not only picking artists based on their viability of success or how many people are going to rock with them. It's, you know, how do they fit within the culture that you already have? Yeah. And I think that does extend then 
from the the culture and the more intimate familial aspect to something that's much more detached or i feel like there are if you think about the whole like type beat economy on youtube or just like the approach that i feel like a lot of artists and producers have which is they hear something on the radio and it's and they're like oh i want to if their goal is to get on the radio and their goal is to get mainstream success it's like oh i want to build something that sounds like that and I guess, yeah, there's a parallel with the the pattern matching in the tech world where you hear a lot of startups like lean on startups or products that people are already familiar with to define their own. So like Uber for X, Spotify for X. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's like it's super similar dynamic that in a lot of cases ends up being self-destructive, like when, when it comes to true sustainability. And I, I think similarly about the beat production market as well. If you go on BeatStars or any of these places, most of the beats you'll see are these are beats that sound like Mike Will beats, or these are beats that sound like Zaytoven. Mm. And essentially, people are doing that because they realize that that pattern matching makes sense. It's almost like there's too much of a risk to for someone to go step out and do their own song because they know that the path to success is people wanting to hear that current wave. So yeah, if you're on BeatStars and you're trying to make it, you're probably going to have, you know, sounds like Mike Will, Banza Make Her Dance remix or something like that <laughs> in, your, in your subtitle. And, you know, that'll be more likely to get traction than you naming the beat something completely different. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And just to like zoom out a bit and also go back to this notion of artists partnering more with tech companies as well. So not just having strategic similarity, but also working directly together. One topic that I think has come up a lot in the music industry, especially as streaming services like Spotify go public and become more popular globally is just the the gap in valuations of the two industries. So I guess the, the one exception would be Universal Music Group. I think the last figure uh, pegged their value at $33 billion, which is like around, if not more than what Spotify was worth, like when it first went public or even at its peak. So like big labels like that have a lot of value, but I think a lot of that is dependent on past catalog rather than future growth. And also, I think in general, for the most part, IP in the music industry and copyright hasn't really taken part in the super high valuations of tech companies. And I definitely read complaints about this the most from the independent music community where you have artists saying like Spotify is worth tens of billions of dollars or Universal Music Group is making like tens of millions of dollars in streaming in a single week. And then I get my royalty check and I'm getting like fractions of pennies per stream. And I think there's just a really big gap there just because the economics are fundamentally different. And one question that comes to mind that I think is not answered, but I'd love to get your thoughts is on whether you think the merging of the music and the VC world will increase the value of recorded music itself or actually exacerbate this problem that some people are seeing. The most cynical end, like the most cynical answer to this question is that as more musicians are preoccupying themselves with things outside of music as the likes of Nas are setting an example for more rappers, for instance, to invest more in tech. They're spreading the message implicitly that recorded music is not enough or it's like not actually that valuable or monetizable, which is encouraging them to lean more on tech for that long-term uh, income and wealth. So I'm, I'm curious as to where you think that's going, if you think it's going in any particular direction in terms of recorded music becoming more or less valuable? Yeah, I think 
I think you're on to the right like trend, which I generally agree with. I think more artists are starting to look at and treat music as the lost leader. This can get you into the space. This can get you known. But if you're really trying to make money, you need to take this and leverage it elsewhere. I think that mentality has its pros and its cons. Its pros are an example like Nas that are investing. And, you know, as I wrote, he currently has a bit of the hot hand right now with having exits from three of the more recent investments that he made. I think the con with some of that is the clout and the influencers that are using that notoriety and using their brand to, you know, just continue to sell other products. And it's not that the selling those products is the con, it's more so the means of how viewing music as that loss leader is now being manipulated in that same way, whether it's, you know, Lil Pump putting out, you know, songs about, you know, J. Cole that clearly he's just trying to get known and then leveraging that notoriety to, you know, end up selling whatever. So I think you're, so I think you're seeing it a bit more often. And it makes me think like music and artists in general, I feel like they've, a lot of them have accepted it and have accepted that music is not the way. And it, I think it, you know, it takes a few folks like a, like a Chance the Rapper, for example, like when he came out with that coloring book album three years ago and was like, this is free. I'm not selling it. Like it's available everywhere. I'm going to make money on tour and do all this other stuff. It was kind of like, oh, wow, this is something, right? With that being said, though, I still do think that there are artists that are trying to place a value on this art and know that um, they don't need to do it on the largest scale possible in order to be successful at it. I had written about Nipsey Hussle uh, a week or two ago and talked about his direct-to-consumer push. And he has this whole vision on selling his art and still being able to monetize that. But instead of trying to fight the, you know, the, the, the DSPs, he's like, no, I'm going to sell it myself and I'm going to sell my mixtapes and sell my albums, ideally sell them for $100, put them in each of my stores Right now, he has the the one store, the Marathon clothing store in Crenshaw, but he wants to be able to open a bunch of these locations up across the globe, have limited drops the same way that Supreme has limited drops for high-end merchandise. And he does the math. He's like, okay, I only need several thousand customers in order to you know make the same amount of money that it would take me you know, a full year to make on Spotify. So he's kind of going at it from a different angle. But I feel like the pulse right now is a bit more less common people doing what Nipsey Hustle is doing. I mean, there's a few, but it's less common to have that. But I still feel like more often than not, it's that chance the rapper movement of my music is free and I'm gonna sell my merchandise and everything else. I'm I'm just thinking a lot about that Lil Pump example that you mentioned because for the last episode of this podcast, the focus was on Ariana Grande and I had made the argument that just like thinking about what made her album so successful and like breaking all these streaming and chart records, part of it was just about her reacting to things that were happening in her personal life. And I, I'd argued that like the song was also was almost just like a gossip column or like a piece of news. And I think with, with that little pub example that you mentioned, it's like, yeah, like the tools and the, the infrastructure is available now to just, like publish a song as a piece of news or like a diss track or something and just make it a headline and publish it immediately, even if it's not going to get you any money, but then monetize the clout and the influence that comes through that 
through other channels. And this is something that I think about all the time as well with respect to the influence of influencer marketing and like the fact that the economics of that, like of just like existing on Instagram and like monetizing that much more effectively than maybe like an album on Spotify by this artist who's just starting out. I think that is increasingly trickling into artist marketing as well. Yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And I, I remember listening to that conversation between you and you and David. And I when I look at Ariana, you're right. Like that essentially was a, a gossip column, a gossip column. And a lot of people were kind of interested, like, oh, um, yeah, what happened with her and Big Sean? What happened with her and so-and-so? This was her way of just rattling off and had a huge hit with um with Thank You Next. But it's different because you look at Taylor Swift, who had so many songs about John Mayer or whoever else she was dating. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, the rub on her for so long is like, all right, Taylor Swift, we get it. We don't want to hear another breakup song. But Ariana Grande does a breakup song, essentially does it with a different style that's a, more relevant to how music is consumed today. And everyone's like, ooh, this is amazing. And it just shows <laughs> the difference of like, yes, like it's not that people don't want to hear this stuff. It's just how do you explain, like, how do you explain it? Like, what is your vehicle to deliver it? And do you understand the culture? Are you still doing things that are like, you know, age old ways of doing it where people are tired of it? Or have you adapted to the times? And I I feel like that's what Ariana's done. Yeah, absolutely. I do have one last question before going to the overrated slash underrated segment. And it's about what types of artists are participating in this merging of music and venture capital. Like if you think about the celebrities who are being investors as much as entertainers, understandably, it's the celebrities with the most wealth. So you have people like Nas, you have Ashton Kutcher, I feel like sort of broke the door down for a lot of other celebrities, both in music and in film, Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, Jay-Z, Jessica Alba, etc. And I bring that up because in your write-up, you mentioned this issue of racial and ethnic diversity in VC and the fact that Black founders account for just 1% of funding received, I think, which is, yeah, like a huge gap. But then there's also, thinking about music specifically, there's a huge financial disparity. And I think some people in studying this space, they might ask the question of like, oh, is this just an instance of the rich getting even richer and like that inequality only increasing even further? And something that I'm, that I think we're definitely in the early stages of seeing right now is what happens when that mindset or that involvement in investment trickles down from just the A-list level of artists to independent and unsigned artists who either are just starting out or are not signed but have generated enough money and saved enough money to invest even just like low to mid five figures in a burgeoning tech startup. And I feel like that activity and just the infrastructure and the organizations that can help out with that, like they're only now starting to come up. But I'm I'm wondering what your take is on that specific gap in terms of the the fact that yeah like there aren't really that many independent artists at least who we're reading about who are participating in the same way as these bigger celebrities are. Yeah, you're right. Most of the big names right now that are rappers or hip hop artists investing in tech are a the ones that have been around for a while, or b the ones that have just accumulated enough money. It is it is the a listers. You're starting to see a little bit more of that now, but still, it's it, it, there's a pretty big gap. And it, it, it reminds me of this quote that Kanye had said 
um, three or four years ago. He was talking about the Grammy specifically, but he was like, you know, it can't just be me and Jay-Z up here in suits. It needs to be future as well. And like, I know that future has a lot more money than he did back then, but like it was meant to highlight not just the wealth disparity, but the class image as well. Like Jay-Z has mm. already kind of assumed that like acceptability role, which I think is very problematic in a lot of ways that, you know, someone like Future has it. I think there's other reasons associated with that too, that Future isn't in that, but that's another topic for another day. But I do think that um, in terms of like the smaller and independent artists, I, I, one of the things I talked about in my piece is that, record labels that have the certain mentality and makeup of investment arms can think about this in that same way. Like quality control music is one of the hottest labels at the moment. In Atlanta, they have Migos, they have Lil Baby, and they are doing the, um, in many ways, like the spray and pray approach. They put out a ton of content, they're signing a bunch of young artists, and they are, you know, left and right trying to convince them to, you know, keep putting out music. We got to dominate streaming. We always, it's almost as if you could see them internally say, we always need to have at least five songs on the big playlists. Keep putting content out. And it's like, if that's your strategy, that could also apply to how you might think about investments. Like if your folks are earning money, then instead of just having them, you know, invest in restaurants or fashion lines, which are some some of the typical outlets for artists, why not put those into, you know, the, the seed round and try to invest alongside a Manhattan venture partners or some of these other firms that are dedicated towards um, athletes investing and um, often have them invest and syndicate with more seasoned investors. That's something that I would like to see. And I think it just makes sense given the shape of those. Like, your artists that are already on Rock Nation, they're much more established in their careers. A lot of them have already done this or explored it in some ways. But some of these younger upstart labels that are getting the teenagers and the folks in their early 20s that you know have the, all the potential in the world, I think this is where they should be thinking. And it would really be cool to see you know someone that isn't a top five dead or alive artists to get mentioned in these big um, exits when, you know, uh, one of the startups either, you know, gets acquired or uh, has a big IPO. That mindset of like, yeah, of diversifying and thinking beyond just what's immediately available, I guess, in the culture economy, sort of, sort of as you're saying, like fashion deals or like other types of brand deals instead of like investing in a different way. Yeah. I think that's super smart for the last 10 minutes I wanted to go to the overrated slash underrated segment, and I would love for you to start. I actually don't know which story you're going to be talking about, but you can go ahead. So you, you probably heard about this story, but I'm picking this story as overrated. It is about a, a Supreme Court case that a number of hip-hop artists were have gotten involved with that they recently submitted a brief to. Uh, in 2014, there is this rapper, this Pittsburgh rapper named Mayhem Mall, and he was arrested on a gun and drug charge and when he was 19 years old. And after he got arrested, he had wrote this song called Fuck the Police. And it was similar to the NWA song, but he was essentially calling out some of the cops that he felt wronged him in, in, in what had happened. And this piece and this case is now elevated because 
he um, had following, he had follow-up charges and he was sentenced for making terroristic threats and intimidating witnesses through this song. And when I saw this, I almost laughed initially because I looked at myself and I said, haven't we been here already? Like, didn't we so many times. watch Straight Outta Compton and see the scene in Detroit where they're like face down because the, um, the, the, the police were like, don't play that song. If you play that song, you know what's going to happen and look what happened. And now you have, you know, Justice, um, Justice Roberts and others like reading these briefs written where Chance the Rapper, Meek Mill, Killer Mike, Yo Gotti, Fat Joe. 21 Savage and probably a few others submitted comments that are explaining what people have said time and time again, where, you know, these lyrics are a form of art. And if you're going to criticize rappers for doing this, you need to look at country songs and look at other genres where, you know, Johnny Cash talked about shooting people and all these other things that happen, but we give those things a pass. But when it's in hip hop, because people are scared, still scared of hip hop, they blow these things out of proportion. So I think that this whole case didn't even need to go to the Supreme Court, to be honest with you, because you've just been hearing about this time and time again. But thank you for Killer Mike and others for you know educating the masses on what rap music is and what rap music is not. That is such a good story and like analysis of all that. And yeah, so I, I think... I would consider myself a more recent, I guess, fan slash entrant into the hip hop space. Like I only really started listening to it around 2014, 2015. But as I'm like reading more about it and like reading more about the history, it is crazy to see how much history repeats itself just like across the board. And for sure, like the and, and this is just one example of that in terms of in terms of how much music and politics are intertwined for the worst and negatively targeting or disproportionately targeting specific genres like hip hop as well. And this is just coming to mind. There is, I think, a similar bias when Spotify rolled out its hateful conduct policy, which is now not in existence anymore. But and it, it was obviously the I guess the core issue was very different. But this was also a primary complaint is that they were primarily targeting rappers like R. Kelly, which I believe is justified and an XXX. But there is this whole line of artists and not just in hip hop. I think this is an issue that people were raising. Like this policy is not very well, like it's not that clear cut at all. And there's so many other artists that you could have potentially included that have also committed these, you know, these negative and maybe violent acts that you're just not thinking about because of these blind spots. So yeah, it's super interesting. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a delicate path for the, for, for any DSP to go down. I mean, in one hand, I, I at least give Spotify some credit for thinking about the concept of this, but the rollout was not well done by any means. And when X came back, pulled up the receipts on all the other stuff that artists had done in his email, in some ways, although, you know, I had issues with the things that he has done, it was also like, you know, thank you for at least, you know, bringing this to light. Because I remember when I first saw this and I believe R. Kelly and X were the first, were like the two people highlighted or got most of the headlines from this. I was like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And, and it didn't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And speaking of DSPs, the piece of news that I have is very different. I don't think it's as consequential and it's definitely not related to the government, I don't think. But it's also a piece of news that I think is overrated. And it was the news that Sirius XM 
now has the first original content team at Pandora. And I think it's they're dedicated to mostly podcasts, I believe, not music, but like podcasts related to sports, politics. I'm sure I'm sure they will have some music podcasts as well, but it's just to like round out. And I think the quote actually in the main billboard article about it was to create quote unquote buzz around Pandora. So just like create more activity around Pandora. And this new original content team was launched at the same around the same time that Pandora also launched Pandora Stories, which is a new listening format that alternates between voice tracks and standard songs or music on a playlist. And I think if you sign up as like a curator type user on Pandora, you can actually upload your own voice voice tracks. So create your own kind of radio station. I don't think this is overrated in the sense that it's so interesting to see how every streaming company is trying to corner their own area of the podcast space. I mean, Spotify just acquired two of the biggest podcasting companies in the world, Gimlet and Anchor. But I don't think they're necessarily positioning podcasts the same way that SiriusXM and Pandora are at all. And I think a lot of it does turn down to demographics. So like, yes, Spotify is, I think, investing in podcasts as part of their wider plan to cannibalize terrestrial radio. Like, I think they've been very transparent about that. But culturally, I think what they're going for is a very different kind of sensibility and a very different kind of audience from what SiriusXM and Pandora are targeting. Like, from from my intuition, it seems that their demographic skews towards older. Um, it's more people who would listen to radio in the car, like, rather than listening to a playlist on their phone. And so it's just really interesting. Yeah, I... I think the jury is still out in terms of how effective this original content team at Pandora is actually going to be. And also part of it is just the brand association. So Pandora was such an early mover just in the online streaming space generally, like, and with their music genome project, they were an early mover with respect to music discovery. But I think even now they're struggling to break out of their, the brand association of them just being like an, in the background uh like listening experience or like in the background recommendation experience rather than the lean forward uh sort of multi-layered listening experience that includes both radio and on-demand functions which i think spotify and other services as well have mastered um a lot better just in the years since pandora was founded so yeah so overall i think it is overrated in a sense that i don't really know if if the content team is going to perform that well, just given the purpose that Pandora serves for a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think you you called out the point that I was thinking as you were sharing this is Pandora was an early mover in this space, and they you know did a I think a good job of early of everyone having a Pandora account and everyone seeing what that was like, but then things shifted and then Spotify and others were like, no, people want to have on-demand options. And not only did they offer that, but they also offered the radio element that Pandora had too. And then they eventually got, you know, taken out of that equation. So it's good, I guess, that Pandora realizes that original content or at least content on your platform that isn't something that is owned by a record label is going to end up, you know, making you more profitable in the long term. But still it's like 
structurally different like it's still structurally different from what's on those platforms uh, on the you know traditional like spotify and others because whether it's um a podcast whether it's a video clip or it's a song people want to be able to access that stuff on demand so the fact that there might be a you know a, a option to incorporate voice or some other content into pandora it still doesn't address that gap and when you think about that when you think about the the, the customer base like yeah I'm, I'm very interested to see how it goes with that being said i mean i still like wish you know pandora the best in this in, in this fight i think in a lot of ways i probably have a little bit you know more sympathy for first movers in a in an area that i do but yeah i think i'm with you uh, a little a little skeptical in terms of how this may shake out mm-hmm. yeah and i think just as these streaming services invest more in podcasting i feel like a lot is going to happen over the next six months to a year and people will it's just so interesting that like the podcast format has been around for so long and only recently is it getting so much hype in terms of like media coverage and also investment and yeah i think i think we will need several months just to see whether that actually generates any return or if, if that is even the goal or like how meaningful it actually is for, for these companies. Right. Do, do you still use Pandora? I still have a Pandora account <laughs> and I still, I still get emails from, from the site. I don't really use it that much though. Yeah. As of right now for like on the go listening, I'm a Spotify user first and foremost. And I think the purpose that Pandora used to serve for me, Oh, I used to use it all the time, like all day, every day, I had a ton of different stations. And those are the emails that I'm getting, like recommendations for additions to specific artist stations. That purpose, now Spotify definitely serves that purpose. And thinking about things like the Daily Mix, which I use occasionally, but in terms of what it's able to do in terms of surfacing new music and really like surfacing up deep cuts occasionally on a more regular basis. Yeah, I, th- I think I've relegated to Spotify for that particular behavior. Right. Yeah. Similarly, I still have an account. I haven't opened it up in a long time. If I was to open it up, I'd probably be a bit nervous about what station you know comes up first. <laughs> you know, what was I listening to back back then? I mean, I'm sure it would be funny to go check now. Um, for most on the go listening, I use I use Title right now, but I feel like I still have my Spotify account open up, you know, semi regularly because. Even though I have, you know, strong opinions about playlists in general, I am curious about what's on, you know, Rap Caviar and is this song made it on the playlist. I also am interested to see like what what do they continue to do and try to innovate with the videos they have and how they're, um, you know, progressing the content. Similar with like Apple Music, I, I feel like similar probably how you feel like. In this job, I still want. I still need to have a pulse on what everyone's doing. But for, sure. for my own um, listening, no, I'm pretty much opening up the title app and and, and seeing seeing what comes up. No, I totally agree. There's like definitely a professional element to it. But given that the likes of Spotify and Apple Music now are like truly global companies and have more and more influence, and from like a playlist placement standpoint, sure, like you might not be there. In another week but that does have like a direct line to revenue for some artists so it is yeah it is really significant i think from the individual artist standpoint and really important to keep up with cool yeah this was a super interesting conversation i don't know if there are any last thoughts that you wanted to share or if there's anything that you would want to promote about what you're working on at the moment yeah so i think many people might know if they're following but 
I write a newsletter called Trapital. It is about hip hop business and strategy. And I break down the strategic moves that artists, companies, and the businesses they've started have done. And I um, write uh, about once or twice a week on that. And if you're interested in that, I recommend you go there and sign up for the newsletter. And you can also find me on Twitter as well at RuncyDan and on most other platforms with the same handle, either there or uh, at Trapital Media. Awesome. Yes, it is such a great newsletter. Highly recommend it. Thank you so much again for joining. This is a lot of fun. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. Thank you all so, so much again for listening to the Water and Music podcast. If you like what you hear, I would greatly appreciate you giving me a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a follow on Spotify, or whatever signal on whatever other listening platform you prefer. It helps a ton with discoverability and will help us spread the word about some of the ideas we're unpacking here. You can fund this podcast on Patreon for as low as $1 a month by visiting patreon.com slash Until next time. 